Omagyanatimirandasya Kyananjana Salakaya Chaksurumilitam Yenatasmi Si Gurave Namaha Ajunulambato Bujo Kanakavagato Sankitanayakapitaro Kamalaya Takso Vishpambaro Dijavaro Yugadhamapalo Vande Jagat Priyakaro Karunavutaro Sri Guri Vaishnav Guru Parampara Ki Jai Esi Bhakti Vedanta Sami Prabhupada Ki Jai Bhakti Rakshat Sri Radeva Goswami Maharaj Ki Jai Sri Bhakti Siddhanta Sastri Thakur Prabhupada Ki Jai Sri Sri Krishna Arjun Ki Jai Bhagavad Gita Ki Jai So today we discuss from the third chapter in which Krishna emphasizes Karma Yoga The seeds for the dilemma of Arjun that appear at the beginning of this chapter are found in the previous chapter, chapter 2. In chapter 2, after Krishna spoke at some length about the nature of the soul, and based on that discussion, knowledge of the soul, he urged Arjuna to fight. Krishna then lowered the discussion to the level of consideration of Dharma, and on that basis he also established that Arjuna should fight. So we have Gyan, knowledge of the soul, and then action in the realm of dharma, which means karma, working according to the injunctions of the scriptures that pertain to one's acquired nature. And then Krishna, in the middle of that second chapter, he describes the combination of work and knowledge in the form of buddhi yoga, nishkam karma yoga, wherein he really covertly speaks about bhakti. The advocacy of Krishna and Bhagavad Gita is one, that of bhakti. But bhakti is spoken about directly and indirectly. And in that chapter, in chapter 2, where Krishna speaks of buddhi yoga, he covertly speaks about bhakti. We discussed this in brief yesterday. This dharma, yoga dharma, is different. A little endeavor in this saves one from the greatest fear, the fear of repeated birth and death. So a little endeavor in this is liberating. So this implies within karma yoga some element of bhakti must be there in order for it to be fruitful in terms of having a liberated effect because only bhakti can give liberation, not jnana, not karma. Karma is in the realm of rajagun and jnana is in the realm of sattvagun. And bhakti is in the realm of nirguna. So Krishna simultaneously advocated action and knowledge. And knowledge, in one sense, is synonymous with inaction. Because if we have knowledge of the soul, then our tendency to act in relation to things that don't endure, having understood the eternality of the soul, diminishes proportionately. He advocated you're a soul, you're not the body, you're not the slayer, no one is slain, therefore you should fight. <laughs> it appeared somewhat contradictory to Arjun. But what he's talking about in terms of fighting is fighting in terms of yoga. Fighting without being attached to the result. And this is the real kind of foundation of yoga, selflessness. And ultimately... Selflessness comes to bhakti, devotion to the Supreme Lord. So in the beginning of the third chapter, the doubts that are in the seed form in Arjuna from Krishna's advocacy in the previous chapter, they flower here and bear the fruit of questions and confusion. Arjuna says, Jaya sitchet karmanaste matabudhirjanardana tatkim karmani ghorimam niyo jayasi keshava If in your opinion, O Janardan, knowledge is superior to action, then why, O Keshava, do you want to engage me in this terrible act? Well, a terrible act of war and fighting, for that matter, in war with his own relatives and even against his own superiors and guru, Drona. Arjun poses this question. You say knowledge is superior to action, still you want me to fight, and such a horrible type of action you expect me to take up on top of that. The contrast is great. Really, Arjun's reservation here to engage in either karma or jnana 
is arising from the fact that he's actually a devotee and that Krishna has, however covertly, actually advocated bhakti, which is the natural attraction for Arjuna. He's not coming out so directly and saying it because that's reserved for later on. Now he wants to lay some foundation. In this chapter he'll discuss karma yoga, in the next chapter he'll discuss jnana yoga, then in the sixth chapter jnana yoga. So all these things have some importance and by way of discussing them in contrast to bhakti, the light of bhakti's glory shines that much greater. So Arjuna addresses Krishna as Janardhan as if to say, oh Jana Ardhan. Jana means people and Arda means to petition or to pray. So all people pray to you for the fulfillment of their desires. So I too am praying to you. I want to know what's best for me. Arjuna continues. He says that your words are bewildering. With speech that seems equivocal, you have confused my intelligence. Therefore, please tell me clearly by which path I will attain the highest good. This is Arjuna's concern, how to attain the highest good, the ultimate benefit of life. The confusion of Arjuna is a question of eligibility because if one is eligible for the path of Gyan, then he's, in a sense, not eligible for the path of karma. If one is eligible for the path of karma, he's not eligible for the path of Gyan. In other words, if one is eligible for the path of Gyan, then he becomes a contemplative, a sannyasi. So he becomes relieved from all obligations in the realm of karma. And if one's not qualified for the path of Gyan, but qualified for the path of karma, then he shouldn't sit as a contemplative artificially. This will come out. The words here in this verse are nice. Arjun says, Vyamishreneva bhakyena buddhim mohaya sivome tadekam bada nishchitya yansreoham apnuyam mohaya siva You're speaking in a confusing way, it seems. Mohaya So, by use of the word eva, seems, he's saying, it seems to me, O preceptor, but I must be wrong because you're the preceptor, you're the guru, and so the bewilderment must be an apparent contradiction arises from my own conditioned nature. So very respectfully, he poses these questions, and in friendly spirit, removing any blame from Krishna for not being clear. Krishna appreciates Sri Bhagavan Uvacha. Pura prupta mayanagha jnana yogena sankhyanam karma yogena yogyam. The Lord of Sri said, O sinless one, anagha. Nice praise of Arjun, who are not to be blamed for this confusion. Why? Because Krishna imposed this confusion, in a sense, upon Arjun, so that Bhagavad Gita could be spoken in the first place. In this world, there is a twofold basis of devotion as taught previously by me, that of knowledge for contemplatives and that of action for yogis. Now the word nishta here we've rendered as twofold basis for devotion. Some other commentators have done so as well, and it works well with the ultimate advocacy of Lord Krishna for bhakti. So in effect, Krishna is saying here, really I'm talking about one thing, but it's talked about in one way for those who are eligible for the contemplative life, and another way for those who are not. And Arjuna at this point in the Bhagavad Gita is not qualified for Jnana Yoga and therefore Krishna will go on beginning with text 4 up until 9 stressing the importance to Arjuna for acting with detachment from the results and he does so by deprecating false adoption of contemplative life. He says, not merely by abstaining from prescribed action can one attain a state beyond action, nor by renunciation alone can one attain perfection. Indeed, no one, even for a twinkling of an eye, remains free from action. Everyone is forced to act even against their own will under the influence of the gunas, born of material nature. One who sits restraining his working senses while contemplating sense objects deludes himself and is called a hypocrite. On the other hand, 
one who begins to control the senses by the mind, O Arjun, and without attachment engages his working senses in karma yoga is superior. Perform your prescribed duty, for doing so is better than inaction. One cannot even maintain one's own body without action. Other than action performed for the purpose of sacrifice, all action in this world is binding. Act and sacrifice for the satisfaction of God, O son of Kunti, without being attached to enjoying the results. So, in this way, indirectly, for the most part, Krishna advocates that Arjuna should take up karma yoga and not jnana yoga. It's apparent from this that at the time, many people or some people were doing that, as is common in this time, artificially take up passive renunciation or contemplative life. And the result is havoc in the spiritual society. This is probably the main reason that people have, in relation to any tradition, lost some faith or all faith in the spiritual paths because persons unqualified for contemplative life or renounced life have taken to that and caused a disturbance in the society. So Krishna is strongly advocating against this. Don't be a pretender. Better to be an honest person. Know your adhikar, your eligibility, and act accordingly. There's no sense of saying that the path of jnana is higher than the path of karma and strongly advocating that to one who's not qualified to take it up. Relatively speaking, which path is better is that path that uh, I have eligibility for. By getting involved in that, I can make progress. There's a strong tendency, in my opinion, in the Western world to want to jump ahead on the spiritual path, to purchase the highest thing even though we don't have the bank balance to do so. We live in a kind of a, a credit-oriented society, which leads us to believe that we can have something even though we don't have the bank balance by putting it on the credit card. That's the way the economy works to a large extent. This is not a good idea when we're applied to spiritual life. Perhaps because of being predisposed towards this, living in that type of economic reality, we apply that to the spiritual ideal when it comes to us. And such high topics are presented. They're attractive, and the logic for pursuing them is above and beyond anything else is compelling. And we should do so, but we should do so properly under good guidance and step by step in terms of our stage of development. This is the real beauty of the practitioner, that he or she knows where they are at on the path and while respecting those who are more advanced, doesn't try to jump ahead. As I said last night, try to become a good devotee, not a great devotee. So as Krishna has advocated along these lines, even what he's advocating, the path of Nishkam Karma Yoga, is a very high thing. It's the beginning of real spiritual practice, yoga, the heart of which is selflessness. So it's one thing to be engaged in prescribed duties according to the revealed scripture, another thing to be doing that and giving up the fruits. We engage in prescribed duties generally for a fruit, the fruit being ultimately to go to heaven. So to do that, with knowledge that, that that fruit is not really what's desirable and the fruit of all action should be offered to God. This is a real entry level of practical spiritual life moving out of the realm of karma. So Arjun wonders at this point, is he even eligible for that? Or what about those who aren't? What is their position? So Krishna speaks very wonderfully in verses 10 through 16 about something even beneath that. Basic adherence to scriptural injunctions in one's everyday life, working in accordance with them. Dharma Shastra and the plane of karma and how even that type of activity has as its heart, if it is to be progressive, sacrifice. So in effect he's saying this may be a little foreboding to work with sacrifice being in the foreground of one's consciousness, sacrificing the fruits of one's activity, 
But even if you're not on the path of Nishkam Karma Yoga, giving up the fruits of your actions, still the principle of sacrifice you cannot get away from. So he speaks about how we live in this world and we're dependent for our necessities upon the various gods and goddesses that personify and represent different aspects of nature without which we cannot prosper materially. For example, without sun, you can't get too far in life, materially speaking. So according to the Vedic literature, there's a relationship between sun, which is part of the divinate, a godly controlling agency, superior controlling agency in nature, and our own body, through which we pursue material acquisition, happy life. We have eyes. Eyes cannot see without sun, so that the relationship between sun and eyes, and so with all of the senses, there's a corresponding relationship with some aspect of nature, and the Vedic literature personifies everything. Finding consciousness behind all aspects of nature, it deifies the different aspects of nature. So there's the sun god and the wind god and the fire god and so forth. We find this also in other cultures, but I don't think we find it as scientifically explained as we do in the Vedic literature. The reason that there's a god behind the sun is because there's consciousness behind all the movements of matter. A god behind the wind, a person that is to say. And so we have a relationship with those persons, those deities. And so in the Vedas there are various sacrifices that we are to engage in, acknowledging our relationship with these deities, and by so doing, we are said to prosper in material life. And so this acknowledgement of them constitutes some type of sacrifice in our life. We cannot just do whatever we want, whenever we want. We have to acknowledge that in order for us to accomplish anything, then we have to acknowledge successfully, we have to acknowledge the deities that preside over the function through which we gather information and thereby accomplish both, that is, the working senses and the knowledge-acquiring senses. So there's a whole elaborate system. And it may appear at a glance, when we read about it in the Gita and other places, to be some kind of magical uh, formula. Satisfy the gods in this way by throwing something into the fire and chanting some mystical uh, prayer, mantra, poof, you'll get some result. And modern people in a rational society may consider this something from the past, superstitious and not applicable in our modern society, but actually the principle is very sound and it's, it's not what's being talked about, merely some magical performance in relation to some mentally projected man-made uh, conception of gods and goddesses. What's being talked about is a very profound thing here, the very principle of sacrifice by which the world goes on. We say that the world goes around by love. Love makes the world go around. <laughs> but we don't always stop to think that love really is something that arises out of sacrifice. So the extent to which sacrifice is not at the basis of what we call love, it's not love. In that sense, love does make the world go around. Sacrifice is what the world, in a fruitful and a progressive sense, revolves around. And to the extent that we are distanced from that, and merely enjoyers, exploiting, pursuing the demands of our mind and senses without any other consideration. That is the extent to which we're not aware of how the world really works, what's really going on. And in that condition, our life is not happy. It's not fruitful in a real sense. We will not get what life has to offer. Getting is a product of giving. This is a section which seems to be beneath yoga, even that Krishna shifts into. But actually, it's very heartening. It tells us, in general, in principle, life is about sacrifice. This is what makes the world go round. Without this in your life, think about it, Krishna's saying. There's no progress. There's no happiness. Otherwise, with regards to gods and goddesses and so forth, I've given an example before that in our everyday life, we know that in order to get water and heat and light 
so forth, there's someone on the other end that we have to acknowledge, the other end of our switch and our faucet and so forth that turns on the light or the button that turns on the heat or turns on the water. Every month we get in the mailbox a bill that tells us there's somebody on the other end. You have to acknowledge them. By acknowledging them and paying the bill, the service will continue. If you don't do that, it will be discontinued. So it's not that if we don't perform these sacrifices, the sun will go out for some and not for others, but the light of reality will be dimmed considerably. And to the extent that we are not involved in human life in the principle of sacrifice, as to the extent to which we will not see the light of human life for a long time and descend into the lower species of life. Krishna says, having created humanity along with sacrifice, the progenitor, Brahma, said at the beginning of creation, by this sacrifice you shall attain all things. May such sacrifice be your wish-fulfilling cow of plenty. By sacrifice, you will satisfy the gods, who in turn will satisfy you. By this mutual arrangement, you will attain the ultimate good. The gods nourished by sacrifice will certainly bestow the fulfillment of your desires. However, one who enjoys the gods' natural gifts without acknowledging the gods themselves is a thief. The saintly, even while eating, performs sacrifice by offering food in sacrifice, and then eating the remnants are released from all evils. The wicked who cook only for themselves eat only their own impurity. So in such a basic activity as eating that everyone performs every day more than once and must perform in order to live, Krishna is saying, sacrifice has to be involved in connection with this activity for us to be progressive in life. At the heart of all this, here it comes out here, the heart of this is like, say grace, to take it out of a Vedic context and put it in a greater context. We should acknowledge that our sustenance from food, that we're dependent upon a superior controlling agency from that. So in many religious traditions, they have that practice of saying grace before the meal. In the general sense, this section is, should be attractive, this idea, to modern persons who have some sense of social activism, that that's progressive, that that's, that giving is the best part of life. So we can try to take it out of the strict Vedic context for the sake of bringing people in by speaking of it in broader terms. Otherwise, the Gita has been spoken in a particular cultural context, and so some of the things that are spoken about need to be explained in that context. So, other than the broader principle here, for example, of saying grace, Krishna is referring to the five types of sacrifice enjoined for the householder that absolve the householder from evils committed through five types of everyday household activities involving five things, the pestle, the grinder, the oven, the water pot, and the broom. It is said on account of these five items, the householder does not attain heaven. <laughs> For their use in household life causes harm to other living beings like insects and so forth. Inadvertently, unavoidably, the pestle, the grinder, the oven, water pot, and the broom. Thus, by performance of five sacrifices, which correspond with the five types of harmful activities that are performed through these five types of household accessories, one counteracts the sins inadvertently committed through their use. So we've tried to explain it both in the stricter Vedic context and then in the broader context. Prabhupada, on the other hand, takes it to another level in his commentary, taking this verse beyond the scope of Vedic law, which was just discussed, to the heart of the principle of sacrifice. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada comments that the devotees who are truly saintly people are freed from all sins merely by the act of offering all their food to Krishna and partaking of the remnants. Krishna next further explains the system that calls for sacrifice on the part of humanity, thereby connecting humanity with divinity, which is what this section is about. It continues, Most of you probably know this verse. Humanity subsists on food. Food is a product of rain. Rain in turn is a product of sacrifice. Sacrifice is born of prescribed duties and ritual. 
Next, ritual and prescribed duties originate from sacred literature. The Vedas and sacred literature arises from the imperishable absolute. Therefore, the all-pervading absolute is eternally situated in acts of sacrifice. So again, Krishna is given the, like the chakra, the wheel of how this all works. When food is it, eaten and transformed into blood, blood into semen, the possibility of birth of bodies of living beings occurs. Food is dependent upon rain. All of this is understandable to modern society, if we think about it. The idea that rain is produced through sacrifice is not apparent. We haven't convinced the modern world of that. However, Madhusudan Saraswati informs that the science of this is detailed in Ashtadhyayikanda of Satapat Brahmana in the section containing six questions in the form of a dialogue between Janaka and Yajnavalkya. So you can go there and look if you want to find out how to produce rain by sacrifice and try to convince the world of the efficacy of Bhagavad Gita on that basis. But there may be other ways to do that without having to take the trouble. Otherwise, it is common knowledge that sacrifice reigns prosperity upon its performer. It should be clear that sacrifice arises from enjoined action, and this action being enjoined in the scriptures originates therein. The scripture is an expression of the Absolute, and is that by which the Absolute is known. It has no human origin and is eternally situated in acts of sacrifice. My dear Partha, one who in human life does not acknowledge this cycle, chakram, lives irresponsibly for sense pleasure and thus in vain. So now the contrast, he who doesn't observe this principle, what happens to him? This section beginning with verse 10 and ending with this verse is not merely a mandate for ritualistic offerings to the gods, a magical technique of bargaining with supernatural powers for one's maintenance. Those who think that this is all that Krishna is saying miss the deeper implication of Krishna's words. In this section, Krishna advocates sacrifice not as a means but as an end itself, for he has said that life begins with sacrifice and is meant for further sacrifice. The bounty of life is not a product of chance. It is the result of detached action. Getting is a result of giving, and moreover, giving is getting. Life really consists of effectively and actively surrendering one's own power and resources to a supernatural personal source. He who does not follow the system described here as the cycle or wheel, chakra of life, would be better off dead, for he would then have the opportunity to do so in the next life. Although he enjoys through the senses and is thus obliged to participate in religious sacrificial rites, he does not do so. His life is most certainly spent in vain. So, a very nice section which appears to be a digression, in a sense, from even the basic entry level of spiritual life, Nishkam Karma Yoga. But in digressing there, and speaking about those who are not qualified for Nishkam Karma Yoga, still the very principle of sacrifice is emphasized. So we should try to latch on to this. As I say, this is what life's about. Don't avoid the door of opportunity in the form of sacrifice when confronted with it. We should go through that and we find out there's real ground to stand on on the other side. Having discussed this, Krishna next speaks about those in two verses who have attained a fruit of Nishkam Karma Yoga. Arjuna questioned, well, maybe I'm not even qualified for Nishkam Karma Yoga. And so he speaks beneath that, although his advocacy in this chapter is Karma Yoga, and now he speaks about those who have attained the fruit. Having done that, he begins to systematically argue in favor of Nishkam Karma Yoga. Arjuna wonders, well, so some people have attained the result. You say, what are some examples of those persons who have achieved self-realization through this uh, Nishkam Karma Yoga with, as I mentioned earlier, that element of bhakti? He says, kings like Janaka, they attained perfection by action alone. Thus, in consideration of the people in general, you should take the proper action. So the idea is, Arjuna is a great person. He's not an ordinary fellow. A great Chetriya, a great noble heritage of Maharaj Pandu. He's the rightful heir to the throne. And that's, of course, what this battle of Kurukshetra is all about. So as Janaka, the great Janaka in the past, is said to have attained perfection, even by performing his prescribed duty in Karma Yoga, you're a great person, you should do the same. So there are examples 
And not only does he say you should do that, but he says you should do it for the sake of people in general. So he's giving another reason why Arjun should perform this, this Kam Karma Yoga. For the first reason, he said, because you can't artificially take the gyan. That will be a disturbance. If you do that artificially, and you don't have qualification for that, mind will go somewhere else. You'll end up doing something that is contradictory to the vows of the monastics. People, like on the pedestal there for everybody to look at, then this blotch will show and people will say, ah, it doesn't work. Big disturbance to the society. On this grounds, you should perform Nishkam Karma Yoga and not take to Gyan Yoga sitting in as a contemplative, doing no work whatsoever. Now he's giving another reason. He says that actually even if you've attained perfection, in this, still you should do this to set an example for the common people. Next, famous verse, Whatever a great man does, others will follow. Whatever exemplary standards he sets, that, that others will pursue. So you're a great man, you have an obligation. So even if you're qualified and have attained, still you should act for the sake of other people. Strong argument he's making. Hmm? And this is a principle, of course, that we find in Chaitanya Charitamrita. And Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami quotes this verse in relation to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's descent and method of teaching. Mahaprabhu taught by his example. His lila is called Acharya Lila. So it's God, he's Krishna, but he's in the lila of an Acharya and setting an example. And that's why we don't accept Gornagar Bhav. Some people who don't study the scriptures so thoroughly think to worship Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who is Krishna, as gopis worship Krishna. But Krishna alone, only Krishna, and only Krishna of Braj exhibits this kind of activity. Mahaprabhu is Krishna, that's true, and he is the same Krishna of Braj, but he's the same Krishna coming in the form of a teacher, an abhakta, so he cannot be engaged with so many village girls outside of marriage. He's married to Vishnu Priya Devi. He cannot be engaged with so many other girls and call this the height of spiritual realization as some people do. Now even one fellow is making a case like this amongst the devotees. There are statements in the scripture, in the Gaudiya scripture, like Chaitanya Mangal, Lochandastakur, and in historical and geographical accounts of Bhakti Ratnakar, we should rely for Siddhanta on Chaitanya Bhagwat. Gornagar Bhav is rejected there. Chaitanya Charitamrita is rejected there. Any hint of it we might find in Chaitanya Mangal or Bhakti Ratnakar, we should not misunderstand. Some devotees have affinity more for Gaurila than Krishna Lila. Some have affinity for both. Some have affinity more for Krishna Lila than Gaurila. Those who appear to have some tendency towards Gornagar Bhav, means they see Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and make some prayer to him, great devotees that is, as if he is the transcendental Cupid Krishna and they themselves are feminine. What they are doing in those prayers, they are seeing Krishna in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu internally and relating to the Krishna of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in that way internally themselves but never outwardly in terms of Krishna's outward appearances. Antar Krishna Bahir Gaudam. Antar is black, Krishna Bahir Gaudam. Outside he's golden. Internally some devotees may refer to him like that. In terms of his being Krishna and then have favoritism towards Krishna Leela. But it is not towards Gaur Leela. And when fabricating this Gornagar Bhav, they are advocating that they are more favorable towards Gorlila than Krishna Lila. But actually such devotees are more favorable towards Krishna Lila than Gorlila. They have more affinity, that is to say, for Krishna Lila. So much so that in Gorlila they are seeing Krishna and relating to him as Krishna internally and making these kind of prayers. But never outwardly are they making some case or any sadhana or any any outward activity in relation to Mahaprabhu as if he is entertaining that kind of relationship. Mahaprabhu is the husband of Vishnu Priya. As husband, he's doing the puja, worshipping God. And Vishnu Priya is assisting. At that time, 
there can be no frivolity between a husband and wife. Husband is offering to the deity, wife cannot be joking with him. This will not pass the law of rasa. So Mahaprabhu is Yadarachrati Shestas. Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami says, he taught by his example, Apani Achari Bhakti, Shikai Mushawari. What Mahaprabhu wrote? What did he write? How many books did he write? No books, eight verses only. A charger means he writes so many books, <laughs> so many commentaries. Prabhupada, the first business of the charya is that he must author something, some commentary. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu wrote eight verses, that's all. But he was a charja more by his behavior. Actually, his way of defeating people was very simple in all of his arguments. Shaivism versus Vaishnavism, who is superior, Shiva or Vishnu, he said. Shiva's taking the Ganges on his head, the foot wash of Vishnu, must be superior. End of the argument. He defeated the Chandkazi very simply. You say that you're religious. Is it religious to kill your mother? No. Is cow not your mother? Yes. Then? Converted. <laughs> With simple logic, but such purity of force behind it. And Prakasananda Saraswati also, very simply he defeated him. But the Charja Sarvabhoma, very easily he converted him. But what he was about, and what was that power for conversion? It was beyond practically explanation. The Goswamis tried to explain in so many tikas, so many books they wrote. But Mahaprabhu wrote only a few verses. His way of teaching was by example. In one sense he wrote little just to stress this point. As it is said in common English that example speaks louder than precept. So we should try to teach by our example, not we learn so many books and theory and speak on that but have not a good example for others. That will not be very useful. So this verse, this comes now, Krishna says, oh, you should, whatever a great man does, you're a great man, so whatever you do, other people will follow. If you just give up work and go and sit, especially if you're not qualified, then that'll be a problem. And even if you are qualified, I say, that for the sake of other people who don't know that, and have appreciation for you, so that they don't imitate you and jump over, then you should set a good example. And he continues. What does he say? That's what I do, Krishna says. I set an example. He says, there's no work for me to do. I don't have to do anything. And there's nothing to be attained by me. But nevertheless, I perform all types of prescribed duties. This is definitely Dwarkadish Krishna speaking here. More than Braj Krishna, whose activities are a little confusing, require the explanation and the incarnation of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu for them to be understood properly. He is Krishna, but worshipping Krishna as a sannyasi, strict moral follower. Sridharmarsh used to say that he was first a devotee of Ram, and then when he met Prakasiddhanta Sarasri Thakur, he became devotee of Krishna, and in the course of being under his guidance, then Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Now, Ram is the moral example. And Krishna Leela is very transcendental. Shudamarsh said, uh, Ram Leela is more or less mundane. Strong statement. It means he's more or less... Leela is setting example how to be a good man, a good woman, an ideal person in the world. Krishna Leela is super transcendental. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu Leela is right in the middle. All the morality of Ram, and by that teaching, what is the supramorality of Krishna Leela. So Krishna says, anyway, there's nothing for me to do, but I act anyway. If I didn't act properly and follow the prescribed duties, then people would follow me and then the world would be ruined. So therefore you should act. Wise people should not unsettle the minds of others, of the ignorant, by telling them to do something that's not a practical for them. The wise should not unsettle the minds of the ignorant who are attached to fruit of work. They should make them delight in all prescribed duties while acting themselves with discipline. Commentary. Truth must be revealed in installments relative to the eligibility of the student. This is a general principle observed in all spheres of learning. Thus restrictions on who is privileged to study the Upanishads is not a social bias but observance of a universal principle. Although loving God is everyone's right, persons are eligible to do so in consideration of the extent of their material conditioning. Sometimes people criticize, well, you say the Vedas are only for certain people, the Sudras cannot read, or only the Brahmins can read the Vedas. It's the same principle that if you don't go to a PhD course, if you haven't got your master's degree, you don't go to the master's course, if you don't have the undergraduate degree, and so forth. It's a universal principle. 
the truth, knowledge is given in installments relative to the eligibility level of understanding of the student. So we should know this point. Sri Dharmaraj very much emphasized this when he began to speak after the departure of Prabhupada and it was so fruitful for those who listened. We could understand why Prabhupada spoke at certain times, certain places, to his audience in certain ways and how to go on from there and in doing so really be progressively following our Gurudev. Whereas some who, who didn't understand this principle can't recognize progressive development on a path to be that. Rather they consider it to be a deviation. So everything is not told at once. Just like if you tell a child Although it looks like we're standing still, the earth is actually moving in an orbit around. And then you explain it as best you can. But then if you go on to say, not only is the earth moving around the sun, then the sun is also moving. Here's the earth moving around the sun, and the sun is also moving at the same time. So her head will start to spin if you try to tell your daughter that. And then if you say, not only that. Not only is the earth moving around the sun as the sun is moving, but the earth is moving on its own axis at the same time and spinning. She will fall over. Lose her balance. So everything can't be told at once. Maybe in a seed-like form, everything is told at once. But with emphasis on what would be helpful for us at a particular time. We should hear the scripture and the advices of the saints with this in mind. So we don't latch on to something that is relevant to us at a lower stage and thus to the extent that we're unable to let go of it at another stage that calls for our progressive march to go forward. This is really the dynamics of spiritual life in Judah Mars's language. Acceptance and rejection. One time you may be told you should marry. And we'll preach from every side to you about this. At a later stage we will tell you you should give up now, become a sannyasi. You cannot say, but you told me to be married. I've done that now. Now I have to change everything. Yes. The stricture in this verse applies primarily to the jnani. He should not encourage ignorant people to give up work, although devotees are also bound to observe the principle described in this verse. This does not mean that they are forbidden to encourage the ignorant in Krishna's service. Such service will not disturb the minds of the ignorant inasmuch as it can be dovetailed with one's karmic propensity. Bhakti does not require that one first purify his heart by another means before engaging in it. However, devotees must teach the ignorant about devotion and engage people in bhakti in consideration of the level of their eligibility. This is how the principle here is to be applied by devotees also. Beginners on the path of bhakti should engage in congregational chanting and hearing about Krishna, whereas advanced devotees can sit in solitude meditating upon Krishna's leelas with an undisturbed mind. However, such advanced devotees should also engage themselves such that their activities serve as an example for beginners to emulate. This was the principle, of course, of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur and his incorporating of the sannyas into the modern Bodhi Vaishnava missions and widespread preaching and so forth. So then Krishna describes the activities of both the enlightened and the unenlightened in two verses. Self-realized, he has said, should not encourage people to artificially give up action. Indeed, the self-realized soul should encourage people to act according to their adhikar and even take up prescribed duties by setting an example themselves, albeit as discipline in the spirit of detachment. So accordingly, Krishna next describes in two verses what the action of the unenlightened and the enlightened person consists of. He says, Prakriti kriyamanani gunaikamani sarvasa ahankara vimudatmakarta hamitimamnate. All actions are performed by the gunas, the modes of nature. One who misidentifies with the body in false ego imagines, I am the doer. So this is the unenlightened person. The relation between action and the gunas, he's describing. The gunas are doing everything. And the enlightened, in contrast, however, O mighty armed one, one who knows the truth concerning the two spheres of action and the gunas, and thus thinks that only the gunas interact with one another, remains unattached. Those deluded by the influence of material nature are attached to their work. The wise should not disturb these foolish people whose knowledge is incomplete. Offering all of one's actions to me 
in knowledge of the indwelling super soul, free from desire, selfishness, and grief, fight. So here in verse 30, Krishna begins covert advocacy of bhakti in the course of describing this Kamkarma Yoga up through verse 35. And verse 35 is a very nice verse that concludes this section. And I'll read it in terms of the overt advocacy of bhakti that's involved here and which corresponds with the conclusion of the Bhagavad Gita. It is better to act in accordance with one's own nature, in parentheses here, as a devotee, one's real inner nature, even though in doing so one may appear faulty, parentheses, for neglecting worldly concerns, than it is to engage in any other duties, however well you might attend to them. It is better to die engaged in accordance with one's own, parentheses, eternal nature, for others' duties invite peril, parentheses, of continued birth and death. Verses 30 through 35 are a covert advocacy of bhakti. Indeed, this is ultimately what Krishna has in mind for Arjuna, and Nishkam Karma Yoga, in which the fruit of one's work is offered to Krishna, is similar to bhakti. In verse 30, Krishna introduces himself into the equation of selfless work as the one to whom one's actions should be dedicated, Mahisarvani Karmani, unto me. He says, he doesn't advocate an arbitrary object of meditation, but himself. His commanding Arjuna to fight only overtly appears to be a directive in consideration of Arjuna's warrior nature. Covertly, Krishna commands Arjuna to act in accordance with his soul's interest in terms of an eternal loving relationship with him. In verse 31, Krishna describes the path he wants Arjuna to tread as his own, mematam, he says, it's my path, again, the covert advocacy of bhakti, a path that is eternal and arises out of faith. He uses the term there, shraddha, devoid of envy, anusuya, of himself. Again, in verse 32, Krishna identifies this path as his own, may matam, my opinion, he says. In verse 33, Krishna subtly criticizes the path of Gyan, Gyan of Anapi. In the present verse, Krishna says that pure devotion is the natural function of the soul, even if acting in the soul's interest appears inappropriate from the vantage point of socio-religious consideration. It is far superior to mere moral conformity. In the pursuit of the soul's eternal interest, even death is auspicious, whereas pursuance of any other interest than that of one's spiritual progress, prospect, is perilous, however perfectly it is pursued. Better to die in Krishna's service, even if you're not perfect in its execution, the idea is, than to do something else perfectly. In looking at these verses in the light of bhakti, verse 35 parallels the Gita's conclusion. The Gita concludes by telling us that abandonment of socio-religious concerns and surrender to Krishna himself is the essence of dharma, prema dharma. Here he covertly says the same thing. Interpreting this verse otherwise renders it a relative instruction of socio-religious value appearing to contradict the Gita's conclusion. However, there need not be any contradiction, for truth is administered in installments. Understanding this verse in terms of Nishkam Karma Yoga sheds further light on the importance of Scripture. Krishna told Arjuna not to think that he could perform another's duty to avoid fighting. Scripture is to be followed. Baldev Vidyabhushana says that just as one sees with eyes and not the other senses, we learn about religion from Scripture. Doing another's duty will bring social and religious havoc. With this, Krishna stops, as if he's getting ahead of himself, in terms of speaking about bhakti, which is really to come in the middle chapters. As he pauses, collecting himself to continue his advocacy of karma yoga, Arjuna asks a pertinent question. He wants to know what it is that causes one to act contrary to scripture even after gaining scriptural knowledge. What does Arjuna ask? Oh, by what influence, O descendant of Vrishni, does one act improperly as if forced to do so against his own will? And Krishna responds, the force is lust born of Rajaguna. It eventually transforms into frustration. It is insatiable and very injurious. Noah to be the enemy. So from this verse to the end of the chapter, Krishna discusses this enemy, where he resides, what are his strategic positions, and how to deal with him. Krishna said he is Mahapapma, Mahashano, 
very injurious, very powerful, this calm. In dealing with enemies, it is said that one should first seek conciliation, then try bribery. If this is unsuccessful, one should attempt to sow dissension in the ranks of the enemy. When this fails, one must resort to actual physical attack and punishment. Punishment of calm is best accomplished by invoking the help of Kamadev, Krishna, who proceeds to instruct Arjuna how to conquer calm in the next verse to the end of the chapter. So the implication is here by the words Mahashano, Mahapapma. This is a very formidable enemy, so we should take the most extreme measures in order to conquer this calm. Calm means desire, basically, material desire. And it's often described as lust, the reflection of love, because that desire is the most powerful of all material desires. So we need a very powerful means to overcome this. Therefore, as I say, we should invoke Kamadev, the Lord of Kam, Krishna, the transcendental Cupid in Bhakti. In this way, we will be successful. So from here to the end of the chapter, Krishna discusses this to some extent. Thus ends the third chapter. Does anyone have any question? Yeah. Yeah, sure. The relationship is that one who is unfulfilled and thus has lust or desire, lust for things, there's no limit to it. So greed is a natural consequence. You cannot satisfy the heart of lust. So who has lust has greed. Because it can't be satisfied, no matter how much you get, you want more, though greed is there, and because also you don't get enough, or what you get, even though you wanted it, is not satisfying, therefore the anger comes, the frustration. So they all work together. It's no question of having lust, but not having greed, and not becoming frustrated. Anything else? For what? No, the idea of if, by saying that Uddhava would have acted differently means he would have done something other than fighting because he wasn't a Chatriya. Arjuna's only fighting because he's a Chatriya, so that's his prescribed duty. He would do the prescribed duty of a Brahmana. That's the idea. Alright, we'll stop there. Simon Bhagavad Gita ki jai, Gauri Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai. Isi Bhakti Vedanta Swami Prabhupad ki jai, Bhakti Rakshak Siradiv Goswami Maharaj ki jai, Sri Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasri Thakur Prabhupad ki jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda ki jai, Gaur Premanandi.